Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This week on the Gigan Pod, all the big decisions and hard calls on the Socceroos in the countdown to Qatar. We're joined by former Socceroo Tommy Orr and former Matilda Amy Duggan to run the rule over the New Zealand series and what's to come against the likes of Denmark and France. England got relegated in the Nations League. Who's the World Cup favourite now? Many of the big guns are misfiring. And what about the week in women's football? The Matilda squad dropped, records were broken in the WSL and Spain are in total meltdown. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Welcome to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get into the Gegenpod. Gigan Pod this week. We've got a former Socceroo in Tommy Orr and a former Matilda in Amy Duggan jumping in the pod. Both national teams right at the peak of the news cycle right now as well. Tommy, you're taking to the Gigan Pod quite suitably because we find you jet setting across Europe. Tell us about your travels. Yeah, I came to Europe a few weeks ago just to uh, for a bit of a holiday, so it's been good. But um, yeah, already missing Australia a little bit to be honest. So. Um, no, it's been, it's been good. It's been uh, good following the international window as well. Um, I just watched actually Spain against Portugal on TV, which was great at a convenient time. So it's been good. Haven't had the urge to pull on the boots, Tommy, and turn up for a training session or a trial somewhere. <laughs> I think that game um, nailed in my retirement, watching the standard that game. <laughs> <laughs> and Amy Duggan, great to have you back on the Gagan Pod as well. Yeah, it's good to be back. Lots to talk about. It's always exciting times in football. That's a ever-moving ball, isn't it? Let's kick some goals this morning, though. Well, let's <laughs> let's start with your best and worst of the weekend because, of course, we didn't have club football, so you can go off the beaten path if you want. Uh, for instance, I'll give you my best of the weekend. I don't normally, but watching the South Australia NPL Grand Final, West Adelaide won, and they did the Zorba dance out on the field in a big circle. It was their first ever women's title, and West Adelaide, formerly uh, known as Hellas in the old NSL, that was great scenes, and it was great to see it got a bit of traction on social media too. Amy, what was your best moment of the weekend? Ooh, I can never just stick to one. I have this shortlist, and I have to, like, whittle it down. So I have two because I have to say Australia beating New Zealand in New Zealand was pretty awesome, and the world or, or the Australian football public being introduced to the characters like Jason Cummings um, when he scores on debut. I think that's really cool. But my actual moment of the week goes to the 47,000 fans that packed in to see Arsenal beat Tottenham in the WSL because I'm just super excited that these – um, big crowds uh, continue to pack out stadiums for women's football around the world. And I don't want to be talking about it in a month's time or a year's time because it will be normal. Excellent point. And we will get to the WSL <laughs> as its own dedicated segment. Tommy, what about yours? So as I mentioned, I've been following a lot of the international football over here. And I watched a game about three or four days ago. It was the Netherlands against Poland. And um, the first goal from the Netherlands was from Gakpo. And I think the Netherlands maybe strung together 30 or 40 passes in the lead-up to the goal, and it was just a beautiful goal. So that was my uh, moment of the week. 
Uh, there have been some super, super goals in the Nations League. If you haven't seen Benjamin Sheshko's goal uh, this morning for Slovenia, unbelievable goal. Um, you need to check that out on Optus Sport. It's been a, a pretty sensational Nations League break. Uh, so even though we've missed our club football, we've certainly had some quality to make up for it. But what about the not-so-good, Amy? I don't want to bring us down, but what was your worst moment of the weekend? <sighs> I was just about to say, Nations League's a little taste of what's to come in November, and I'm super excited about that as well. My worst of the weekend is a little bit left field, actually. Um, So over in America, the Chicago Red Stars are looking to try and cement a playoff seating. They faced Portland Thorns on Sunday. The side is down 1-0. The ball goes out the sideline and clearly comes off a player, clearly comes off a player, but the referee disagreed and gave the ball the other way so Bianca St George's literally flips the double bird at the referee it was the most bizarre moment I've seen in a long time during a game and then gets red carded for it so not only is her team down everyone's frustrated but the the brain explosion and the double bird which is just feels like something out of BMX bandits from like the 1980s gets gets flashed out uh and then worse for them they got a second red card a little later on for for two yellows so um just that brain explosion and old school like frustration coming out but yeah worst moment of the weekend for me that's so strange because she was so disciplined when <laughs> Canada played against the Matildas. I mean, it, for, from what we saw of her character, that seems like a totally different person. It was the bizarrest thing to watch. You'll have to go back and look it up. <laughs> Tommy, you're not so good. Sticking with the Nations League, I hate to jump on a bandwagon, but I think Harry Maguire's performance uh, yesterday, um, obviously giving the ball away and then conceding a penalty all in the same action um, and also costing another goal, I think uh, his form has obviously been the topic of a lot of discussion, but I think that he did himself no favours in in his performance um, against Germany. So that was my particularly poor or worst moment from the week. Poor old Harry. (laughs) (laughs) And we will get to talking about England in a bit of depth as well. But we need to start with those Socceroos because they had two wins from two against New Zealand, 1-0 in Brisbane and then 2-0 over in Auckland at Eden Park. Tommy, off the back of that game, you wrote a column for Optus Sport about the team you would take to the World Cup. We'll circle back around to that at the end of our our Socceroos chat, but I will flag for anyone listening that if you want to jump on the Optus Sport website and pull up that column as you listen to this chat, it it might uh, hold you in good stead for a little uh, bit of what's to come in this discussion. But we can't start anywhere other than Garang Quoll. Tommy, um, to see an 18-year-old only recently had his birthday come into the game and just light it up the way he did, how did it make you feel watching that action? Oh, I mean, his pace is something that um, it's just a weapon that we haven't really had in the national team for so long. So, you know, every time he's on the field, you feel like something's going to happen. And there's not many players that you can think about in the last kind of 10 years in the national team where that's been the case. Um, Obviously, he's only played eight or nine A-League games so far, and he has very limited experience, but it kind of doesn't matter what situation he's been thrown into, he's been thri- he's thrived. So I think that, for me, um, you mentioned the squad that I put together, he was one of the first names I put in there because he's sort of a circuit breaker, he gets people off their chairs, but he's also, I think, can genuinely make a big difference and improve the squad. And I guess, um, Tommy, with not having a lot of game time under his belt, when you go to a tournament like this, uh, you do a lot of analysis on all the players and he'd be a hard one to pin down um, as, you know, what foot to put him on or where to to take him as a defender or how to stop him because um, there's not a lot out there on him. But also, like, you just can't beat speed. 
um, at the end of the day. And he and he's still got that youthful enthusiasm of a young player coming through that can see opportunity right ahead of him and he's obviously you know brash enough and confident enough to grab it with both hands there's no confidence problems there it doesn't look like so just gets out there pulls on the jersey does the same job no matter what level of football he's playing but the best thing is there's just those little excitement factors where you just sit up a little bit straighter or you're standing up in in the crowd and um, he will get bums off seats because he's exciting to watch and creates chances like every moment that he was involved in in that game became something Uh, Tommy you had him in your 26 to go to Qatar what role should Garen Qual have do you see super sub as the role or do you think that maybe with still six weeks of A-League form to be put in the books he might end up going as sort of a uh, a less used or non-used player just for the experience or if we're taking him are we taking him to get on the field yeah, I think um, I actually went to the 2010 World Cup just as a kind of train-on player, so I wasn't el- eligible to play, but um, I was only 18 at the time, so I guess it's not too dissimilar of a situation that he finds himself in now, but for me, um, looking at the squad, I think he should play. Um, whether or not that's from the start, I'm not sure if he's ready to play from the start, to be completely honest, but I think that to come off the bench, you know, the 70-minute mark, you need a goal, you're 1-0 down, or whatever the situation may be, I can't really think of a more ideal attacker to bring on than him. Um, you know, the, we're probably likely to not have heaps of possession, particularly in the first game against France. And I think his speed on the counter-attack can be a real weapon for us. Your 2010 experience, though, uh, the late Pim Verbake, what did he say to you? We, was he totally up front, you're coming as a train-on, or were you still hoping that maybe uh, someone rolls their ankle or gets gastro and all of a sudden Tommy Orr's in the World Cup squad? Yeah, so it start, we actually had a camp in Australia first, and it was a 30-man squad, and he trimmed it down to 23, and I think he, he ended up taking me, James Holland, and Shane Lowry um, as train-on players, but if there was an injury kind of in the lead-up to the World Cup, then one of us would come in, and obviously you never wish an, an injury um, on one of your teammates, and to be honest, at 18, I was just kind of stoked to be there at all. Um, you know, having kind of, you know, Harry Kuehl, Tim Cahill, Schwartz, all these caliber of players, it was kind of a dream come true. And similar to Qual, um, I kind of only made my A-League debut maybe six months before that. So it was a real kind of whirlwind um, moment. I really had to pinch myself that I was there. So I didn't really um, maybe soak it in or really have the competitive edge I, you know, maybe could have at the time. But I mean, yeah, for him to give me that opportunity was fantastic. And um, I definitely learned a lot. It can be slightly overwhelming uh, walking into a tournament like that, seeing all the big names in the same place in these massive stadiums packed out with people. Um, and also as you find your feet in a national team, because remember this is his first you know, environmental uh, experience in there, you, you do need some time to settle into what, you know, what the team expects, where the standards are, um, how you're going to operate, how it, how it runs uh, as far as logistically goes. Um, the travel, obviously not such a massive, a massive challenge over there, but um, yeah, just to find your feet in and around that environment. And it can be quite mentally draining, Tommy, I would imagine as a young player to be in there and expected to be at your peak at that moment against the best in the world when you've really only had a taste of elite football. For sure. I mean, I, I, you, what your, your comments just then kind of jogged my memory back. And I remember, I think we were in South Africa, maybe a couple of weeks out from the World Cup and we'd been training already for a few weeks. And 
Pim Verbeek asked me if I was feeling all right because he thought I wasn't quite as sharp that day at training. And I, it was kind of a, a moment of realisation for me that, you know, when you're, when you're representing your national team and at this kind of level, you can't let your standards drop at all. And um, I guess that was a real learning curve for me and definitely made me realise that you can't have any off days. So, Amy, the qual story is a great story. Obviously, uh, you know, new Australians with his South Sudanese heritage, growing up in Shepparton from a big family, a footballing family. We've seen Alu go to Stuttgart. We know that Teng is coming and the the Qual family continues to provide us footballers. It, is it nice, though, that it's now become, you know, you've got the story to bring people in, maybe the once-every-four-year fan that's uninitiated to the game who can sort of find a bit of emotional investment, but also the football side of it is good too. So the hardcore football fan that knows the story and has followed every step of the journey and followed Alu's trip from the Central Coast to Stuttgart as well, there's, there's something to satisfy all parties, isn't there? There is, and it is such a wonderful story, as you say, um, with uh, the brothers and the way their journey, I guess. I'm trying to work out how much of their football journey we can claim as Australian products or if this is, you know, the true, you live with the ball at your feet. It's part of your your family. It's part of your day. It's just time on the ball. There's And there's had to be some great coaches in there uh, along the way, but also opportunities opening the door. And obviously, Alu you know, broke through from MPL2 playing in Shepparton um, to get his first contract uh, at the the more elite level um, and has then paved the way. And it kind of reminds me... Um it kind of it kind of reminds me of the first one breaking through and being amazing, but every generation that comes after that seems to just get better and better. So it's exciting because we're only just seeing Garang on national television now, and we're going to be able to follow his journey. But to know that Teng's on the way as well, it's just um, I will be following with my eyes wide open. Cannot wait to see what these guys produce and where they go. That's the other burning question, I suppose. The Newcastle link has been made. We've discussed it here on the Gegen Pod. I suppose watch this space because if Garang goes to the World Cup, he's going to be mentioned in every article uh, around the world by the international press about Wonder Kids and who to watch at the tournament. And I actually think that's kind of nice about Australia. We've become a bit of a shop window team where players can really materially change their careers by playing well at this tournament. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's countless examples of players that have gone to the World Cup and then got you know, fantastic moves from there or, um, you know, the exposure that they otherwise didn't have. And I think the first example that comes to my mind was Luke Wilkshire in 2006. Um, you know, he did, he, no one expected him to reach the World Cup squad. No, not many people in Australia knew who he was. And then on the back of that, he ended up having a fantastic career and has been, you know, one of the best kind of Socceroos players for the last 20 years. So for sure that the World Cup can kind of be a platform for players to go on to bigger and better things. Now, I want to loop back around to something that was in your best moment of the weekend, Amy, because you talked about the characters in the Socceroos team. And Jason Cummings subbed on for his international debut, same as Garang Qual, won and then stepped up to convert the penalty for the 2-0 lead over in New Zealand. He's done the media rounds ever since. He was talking about uh, how he rubbed his tattoo for inspiration. And then at the A-League's season launch yesterday, he mentioned that his dog Carlos is named after Carlos the baby from the movie The Hangover. He was actually asked, is your tattoo, uh, is your dog called Carlos because he's named after Roberto Carlos, and he goes, no, he's named after Carlos the baby. So like, he's he's just, he, he's an amazing quote. He gives uh, everything on and off the field that you could possibly ask for. I guess, is it vindication for 
all the fans and all the sort of hype that was attached to wanting to cap him, but also the dynamic and the change that he might bring to the squad, you know, the different accent, the different perspective. What's it going to do for this Socceroos team if he can prove himself and get into that World Cup squad? I just think he lightens the mood a little bit and, um, you know, brings a little bit of character. It's always wonderful to have a character in the change room. There's two sides to this, and I'll get to the other side in a minute. But um, the, the best thing is you lighten the mood a little bit. You bring everybody along. You have a laugh. Uh, he's clearly self-effacing, has no problems. And if you've seen that wrestling video, which I just could not, didn't want, it was like a car crash. I didn't want to watch it, but I couldn't take my eyes off it. I was like, this is hilarious. This Like, how are you getting away with this? Almost in my head. Um, and I think that's where the fine line comes comes in it's great to have characters it's great to have that feeling uh, in the change room uh, all around the, the national team most of the time but there does become a serious side to what we're doing and, and you wouldn't see those antics before a game I wouldn't think and certainly at the moment he's confident and you're able to turn that on on the field big personalities when they're not going well um, it can sometimes be a bigger drag to get them back up to the top and I think that's something that you'd have to keep in mind with him while it's all going well I think it'd be great what happens when it doesn't and you know that's it that's a coaching question and a personality question and I don't know him well enough to know uh, what's happening there so but it's certainly something that came up in my mind and then obviously the other side of it there's a time and place for for fun and crazy and character and all of that Um, and sometimes you need to know when to tone it down I'm assuming he's professional enough to understand the difference because he's made it to the top so far. Um, But that's something, you know, as far as team culture and camaraderie and the rest of it, that I'd be keeping my mind um, open to. But in saying that, I can't wait (laughs) to hear the conversations that happen with all the different accents (laughs) in that national team. If you walked into a room and you didn't know who they were, it would be hilarious trying to work out where this team comes from sometimes. So, um, but yeah, I I think it's great for the game. It's great for publicity um, first and foremost. And you know what, if it brings different fans or more fans to the game, I'm all for it. I I completely agree. I think, you know, he's obviously a larger than life character like you touched on, but the thing that, kind of gives him the point of difference is you know that that energy the confidence or the swagger whatever you want to call it he takes it onto the field and he plays like that as well so he can kind of back it up on the field and it's not often that you see that so for me I mean he's one of the first players I picked in my squad as well just because like Qual I think he's a point of difference and like I said before I think he's someone when he's on the field you feel that the Socceroos are more likely to score so for me that's that's uh, that kind of selects himself. He's an absolute entertainer, Tommy, and that's it's so great to see. Uh, I have a question for you, though, with your selections because you've chosen some players that are out there and very different to what we're used to seeing. Is it just a case of you're tired of looking at the same old souls? (laughs) Yeah, not quite. I mean, I left out some good friends as well, which is maybe a topic for another day. But um, I think that for me, I think if you look back at the qualifiers and the games against Peru in particular and the UAE, the last two, You know, there was no confidence in the squad and we kind of won against all odds. And it was players like Kai Rolls who hadn't even had a Socceroos appearance yet that got given the opportunity in those games where the Socceroos turned up and played as well as they had in all the qualifiers. So I think it's it would be naive to then turn around and go back to what we were doing throughout the whole qualifying campaign. I think we need to, to learn the lesson and evolve. I think the national team needs to constantly evolve. And that's kind of what I tried to reflect in my selections. Well, this is what I wanted to follow up on with you, Tommy, because 
Jason Cummings is one of a number of players who's not over the line yet and is trying to play their way in. Who can play their way in, though? I'll throw some names at you. You know, Daniel Arzani, Jason Davidson, Craig Goodwin, Tommy Rogic, but even ones who maybe previously we assumed were sure things, like Jamie McLaren. Who do you see as needing to still play their way in as opposed to, congratulations, you're already in the squad? I think all the A-League players will be a little bit anxious because they don't have the same kind of lead in, you know, in, in Europe all the players are kind of four or five games in at least into their relative competition so it kind of gives them more of a window to impress and to stake their claim whereas in the A-League, it's, in the A-League sorry, it's a real uh, sink or swim situation, you know, if players don't hi- quite have the good form in the first few games then they'll probably miss out and, you know, there's some other A-League players that you haven't even mentioned, I think Jake Brimmer last year won the you know best player in the A-League and he's not really in the discussion as well and I think there's obviously a lot of competition for, for spots in his you know number 10 role but he's someone that for sure I think that if he starts the season well could earn a spot. Now in order to make space for Jason Cummings there's no Adam Taggart in the squad that you named in uh, your Optus Sport article. Uh, is, that, is that the one where you're expecting a text message, you know, bro WTF, or like what, what's, the, what's the story there? What's, talk us through your reasoning behind Cummings over the likes of Taggart. Well, I think that Jamie McLaren and Adam Taggart, there's a lot of similarities in the two players um, for me, and, you know, they, they like to play on the shoulder, and they're not, their strength isn't holding the ball up. And I think that, um, obviously, Mitch Duke is, is a player that's capable of holding the ball up, and I think he's one that was stiff to miss out on my squad as well, but... You know, with Matthew Leckie's versatility, being able to play out wide, end up front, and I think Jason Cummins, you know, ability to bring other people into play, I feel like they're they're two options that I couldn't look past. And you know, there's obviously going to be different challenges um, thrown against the Socceroos in the three different games, and I feel like versatility is key. And I think that the players I chose, not only being able to play multiple positions, but they're different types of players. Where I tried to select, you know, diff- players with different qualities that you're not necessarily choosing two similar players that will potentially do the same job. Let's move uh, a little bit further back in the pitch. Uh, Mark Schwartzer, unfortunately, a late scratching this morning. So who wants to grab the keys to the Cammy Devlin hype train and uh, put that back on the tracks? Do, do we think that he is now going to play his way into the World Cup squad, given that, again, there's no shortage of competition and a lot of similar sort of players at that level, central midfield role, that are going to be potentially squaring off against him for a spot in the squad. And we've had to wait such a long time. He's 24 now, and I know that a lot of people have been calling for him to get a shot and get this first cap. What needs to happen for someone like a Cammy Devlin between now and the final selection? Yeah, I think he's our most natural number six in the whole squad. Um, yeah, you know, we would look at Aaron Moy and Jackson Irvine. They're players that like to get forward a bit more. But, you know, I've obviously played against Cammy Devlin a lot in the A-League in the last few years. And I must say, he's a formidable opponent. Um, you know, obviously, he's got the work rate defensively, but also with the ball. You know, he's always demanding the ball from the defenders. And he, he likes to play forward in between the lines to get the number 10s on the ball. And I think that's something that not many other players in the squad can do that as well as him. So... Uh, for me, he was definitely one that I didn't hesitate to put in the squad, and I think that his club form and his performance against New Zealand deserved the call-up. And then the defence. This is where we know that Kai Rolls missed injured. Harry Souter still on the comeback trail. Uh, Bailey Wright had a berth, uh, so congratulations to him, but it does mean that we didn't see him. Trent Sainsbury was there. Thomas Deng was there. Milos Degenek. Talk us through maybe how you see the centre-back situation, Tommy. Yeah, so I, like I touched on in my column, I think that it's a little bit of a, a difficult um, position for the national team at the moment because I think that 
you know, the, the three strongest contenders for the centre-back positions in the national team are all left-sided players. Um, and obviously dis that kind of disrupts the balance. You, in an ideal world, you'd have a right-footer playing right centre-back and a left-footer footer playing left centre-back. And we saw against uh, Peru and the UAE, um, Bailey Wright and Kai Rolls um, play as the two centre-backs. And Bailey Wright playing on the right side, whilst defensively he was immense, I think playing out from the back, it caused us a few problems. So. Um, it'll be interesting to see what Graham Arnold does in, in those roles, but I think Thomas Deng really put his hand up in the last game as well um, for the right centre-back role, and um, I would love to see him included in the squad. It's also about getting that balance, isn't it, Tommy, with height and speed, especially when you look forward to the World Cup uh, at some of the formidable uh, strike force opponents that this this defensive line could come up against and you need to not just be balancing your left and right side but you also need to make sure you've got the height component covered uh, and you have the speed component covered because unfortunately not a lot of tall players are super super fast absolutely and I think um, for me I mean what like you touched on you know the anticipation as well and the speed and um, the height as well. I think Kai Rolls is probably the one player that excites me the most in the national team setup at the moment because um, obviously against Peru, um, you know, kind of backs against the wall, no one expected him um, to play the way that he did. And I think that he plays with a maturity um, well beyond his years. And obviously he's had a small setback now with an injury, but um, the way he's taken to life in Scotland as well, I think that um, fitting in him and Harry Suter will be a, a great problem that the Socceroos kind of have to, to deal with in the years ahead as, um, you know, obviously Harry Suter's got obvious qualities that you mentioned um, with, with his height, but Kai Rolls' kind of all-round general, um, you know, strength on the ball as well, I think that they could definitely be a fantastic partnership. Well, I have one more on the defence, and it's to do with Trent Sainsbury. Tommy, this is someone you know well, a teammate for a long time in the national setup. When that, that high long ball uh, got the better of him in the Brisbane game, what, was, what do you think is going through Trent's head? You know, he, he's been kind of out of sight, out of mind playing in the Qatar Stars League, didn't feature for the Socceroos in those vital World Cup qualifiers. Here's his chance to remind everyone that he's still Trent Sainsbury, the one who, who's built such a great reputation for himself. How does he sort of uh, mentally adjust? What's his resilience like? And... What do you expect from him in order to nail down that spot in the team? And, and let's be honest, there's a lot of naysayers out there, whether it's Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you want to go, talking about you know the, the nepotism element and, and that side of things uh, with the connection to Graham Arnold through being a son-in-law. But how does he filter that out, ignore sort of the noise on the outside and get the best out of himself? Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, you never want to start a game, um, you know, with an, with an error in judgment like the one that he had. But you know, I, for me, I think that he's kind of experienced enough and um, to, to, to to you know not dwell on those mistakes. But I think that in that game in particular, the physicality of Chris Wood, he he struggled to deal with. And um, the disappointing thing from his perspective, I think, was that he didn't learn his lesson in how to deal with it. He tried to get really really close to him and make physical contact, but. Um, you know, Chris Wood is obviously one of the strongest players in the Premier League. So, um, but he kept he kind of compounded his mistake by repeatedly doing the same thing. And I think that that was the more disappointing thing for someone um, from that experience, uh, who has that experience. Sorry. And you know, I think that we we all know what he's capable of. And you know, he's been one of the best and most consistent players for the Socceroos for so long. But not playing at a high level week in week out at club land. Um, you know, can lead to these kind of mistakes and these naiveties, not playing against the best strikers in the world anymore. And I think that that was kind of a reflection of what we saw against New Zealand. 
Now, I want to get on to talking about Mitch Langerak because this was his chance for a first cap since 2017. And yet in Game 2, it was Andrew Redmayne who got the full 90. Langerak not even subbed on for the second half. And Scott McDonald, of course, uh, very well known to our Gegenpod listeners as a, a semi-regular guest. Um, he mentioned on the television coverage how disappointed he was after the Brisbane game that we didn't see more of the new faces integrated in with the experienced faces to allow them to gel, to see how they combined with players. And I th- Surely there's no position more important than a goalkeeper for that to take place. Uh, Andrew Redmayne, if we see him in the World Cup, either one, we've got out of our group and we're in a penalty shootout, or two, we've conceded a last-minute penalty and we still have a sub left. I don't think we're going to see him in any other circumstance. But uh, what I want to know is why why wouldn't, Tommy, we play Langerak? Because I, I know he's played international football with Bailey Wright and he, he is acquainted with some of these Socceroos defenders, but there are so many new faces since he was last in the team in 2017. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, admittedly, I was a little bit bemused about not seeing him, particularly in the second game, get a run, but... Um, yeah, I think that if you look back at the last four years, maybe since the last World Cup, obviously um, he retired from international football, but in clubland, I think he's maybe been Australia's most consistent player. Um, so, you know, obviously Arnie convinced him to come out of international retirement, and I think this was the perfect opportunity to kind of, yeah, as you mentioned, reintroduce him into the squad and, you know, um, get him playing again with players that he'll probably, well, who knows, might have to play with in a few months' time in, in the World Cup. So... For me, it was a missed opportunity, and um, I think, yeah, also a missed opportunity for all the fans as well to see um, Mitch play because obviously not heaps of Australians see him all too often, but um, I think he's been one of Australia's best players for the last four years. So, it's um, yeah, I was a little bit disappointed as well. Well, we'll have to wait and see what comes next because there's no more friendlies. If we see Mitch Langerak in the World Cup, it's going to be in a competitive environment. And this is the unique situation, Tommy, crashing in mid-season. I know the Argentine FA actually wrote to clubs in Europe saying, any chance you can rest your Argentine internationals in the last weekend of club football in mid-November before everyone goes and reports to the World Cup. And this this countdown, I mean, there's never been a better time to pay close attention to the J-League or, or watch it on Optus Sport because I think people are going to be so intrigued by Mitch Langerak that if he's in ripping form and potentially providing some competition to Matty Ryan, who himself will be playing in the Champions League, it's not implausible that we may see Mitch Langerak's return to the national team be on the biggest stage of all in a World Cup. Absolutely, and I think, um, like you mentioned, the preparation for this World Cup compared to previous tournaments is so limited. So I think that taking players in form is even more important than it normally is. Um, you know, Normally, for example, you have four or five weeks of, of kind of build-up or leading into a World Cup, maybe one or two friendly games here and there, but this time it's sort of just like an international window, a regular international window. So, you know, if players are carrying little niggles or they're slightly out of form, I think that should carry a lot of weight even more than it would in a normal circumstance. So, um, yeah, for, for, for Mitch, it's, it's no exception. Now, Amy, one of the reasons that we saw Gus Hiddink on the bench next to Graham Arnold is because the regular assistant, Rene Muhlenstein, was in Denmark watching Denmark beat France, a sensational result for Denmark in the Nations League. What were some of your takeaways from that? Because it's quite convenient for the Socceroos that all our scouting could be done in one place. But, gee, the Danes, they, <laughs> yeah. they, they are now looking formidable. And I think France are going to have their own concerns uh, should they need a result off them uh, going into that second group game. 
Yeah, I, I feel like this was a weird matchup right before a World Cup considering they're going to face each other and um, this can go one of two ways. It can be a real confidence builder or it can start to open doors to lots of questions in your head, right? So um, all the players and the coaching staff will be going through that from Australia's point of view. As you said, what a, what a great opportunity to see both these teams in action and what a result for Denmark because I don't think um, many pundits will have picked this. There seems to be the splits when it comes to France. There's those that think they're um, because of the big names and, and the expectation that they're amazing, that they can go all the way. You know, people are picking them in, the, in their top. And then there's this other side of the, the tree that goes, uh, they'll capitulate, they're chokers, they'll crash out. Um, so you're either on one bus or the other. I, I, I don't sit on either. I kind of sit more towards I think they'll do better than people think. Takeaways from the game that I saw, Ericsson, unbelievable. Those perfect pinpoint balls and switches from you know centrally was just they were just outstanding um France's defense I had questions there didn't seem to be a lot of scanning and and certainly with that first goal not a lot of communication between them either the the defender didn't even look over his shoulder so I was I was like what's going on there and the big thing that I took away from France and, and maybe this is because it's a well I feel like it should mean more than it did but they just didn't seem to have a sense of urgency. And I think that was epitomized in the second goal as well, where they, they didn't close um, quickly, that there was no urgency to get to the ball. There was no urgency to um, to try and close anyone down. Um, on the other side, and I know people give this guy grief, Schmeichel was outstanding. Uh, he was massive. He covered big spaces. He made crucial saves. And I'm sad that Schwartz is not here because I really wanted to get his opinion um, on on the impact that he thought he had in this game as well but um yeah France some big question marks for me more defensively but Denmark just stood up and I think the key to this team well the key to that game was you know Christian Eriksen and just those pinpoint perfect balls yeah seven shots on target for France so it's not like Denmark played them off the park they had plenty of defending of their own to do I guess the you mentioned that defense they had nine camps between them uh, Batty Ashile, Upa Meccano and Saliba. But uh, Saliba's been a phenomenon in the Premier League this season, Tommy. I mean, these are still top-class players. And regardless of how injury-hit or inexperienced France are, gee, they're still going to be a, a really formidable opponent. And I think Australia will rightly be the plucky underdog going into that first game. Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, they've had a, a well-documented injury crisis. And I'm not too sure that the, the team that we saw against Denmark will will resemble the one that we come up against obviously in a few months time but you know their depth is obviously speaks for itself but in terms of the, the Danes um, you know you always know what you're going to get from Denmark they're always disciplined hard-working and you know, they kind of have sprinkles of quality but like Amy mentioned I think Christian Eriksen he's kind of taken them to another level and his passing and his ability to just dictate a game is something that is going to cause a lot of problems for the Socceroos so that's definitely something I'm sure that Arnie and his team are keeping a close eye on and how we can stop him. Well, hopefully the Socceroos are alive going into that game against Denmark because it is our third and final group game at the World Cup. And in order to perhaps be alive and still in contention to get through to the knockout rounds, Tommy, we're going to need to put up a stern fight against France. So you've been on the hot seat once already this week, naming your squad. Let's refine it even more. Let's get you starting 11 for the game against France, which is only a couple of months away now. Who's your starting keeper? Are we sticking with Matty Ryan in goal? 
Yeah, for me, I think Matty Ryan, obviously sorting out his club future now and playing regular Champions League football, I think he, um, yeah, he, he's a difficult one to leave out. He's obviously the captain as well, and I think he's he's a well-respected figure in the team, and I think that he definitely should should keep his spot. Um, yeah, I, I guess it gets it gets a little bit more difficult the further up the pitch you go, and I think um, in the right back role, Nathaniel Atkinson, I think did enough um, in the last game, and I think he gives a lot of energy going forward. So. He would be my choice for, for right back, and um, obviously the central defend, defensive partnership is difficult that we we discussed it earlier. But I think that Kai Rolls and Bailey Wright, assuming they're both fit, um, they proved against Peru and the UAE that they're more than capable, and they can be really difficult to break down. So, um, along with Aziz Berhitch, I think that you know the last five years he's also been um, kind of you know a key player and an experienced player, and he he definitely deserves his spot and. I think as well that the, the midfield's a little bit more stable. I think Aaron Moy, Jackson Irvine, and Prustich—they've um, kind of been, you know, key cogs for for the midfield for some time now. So they would be my three. And um, Martin Boyle and Owama Bill, who we obviously saw light up Brisbane against New Zealand. I think they they'll be two really difficult players to leave out. And um, Jason Cummins, he he was my starting number nine. That's who you're going with. Cummings is wow. your number nine. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> love it. Okay, just one one question, Harry Souter. I mean, uh, are, are you putting him in? I mean, or do you yeah. need to do you need to see him play for Stoke? Uh, do we need just confirmation that he's ready to go? Because Benzema, I mean, he exploits the best defenders in the world with regularity. So you can just imagine that if he senses any sort of a weakness, he will he will be there to just punish it to full effect. Yeah, I think that. You know, the injury cloud is only one of the factors. If you haven't played football for 12 months and, and you get thrown into a World Cup, I mean, it, it's almost an impossible task to expect him to be as sharp as he otherwise would have been. Um, you know, it takes some time to kind of get back to where you are. So, I mean, I would definitely have him in the squad and I'm obviously hinging on how he goes between now and then, but assuming, you know, he can get back on the pitch for, for Stoke and, um, you know, do well, I, I think that he's going to be a key player for the Socceroos for a long time to come and... Um, Arnie often talks about his presence around the change room as well, and he's kind of a, a leader in, in the group. So I think that, you know, with a 26-person squad, you know, bigger than the 23-man squad that, that's um, the normal, I would definitely have him in there and, you know, a little asterisk next to his name depending on how he presents, I guess. All right, that's the end of our Socceroos chat, but stay with us here on the Gagan Pod because we've got some big women's football topics to get to and we'll wrap up the rest of the Nations League on the other side of this short break. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome back to the Gegen Pod. We've got former Socceroo Tommy Orr and former Matilda Amy Duggan in the pod with us this week. And we've been talking about the Nations League. We touched on Denmark beating France, but let's get in to the other big headline out of the Nations League, which is England got relegated. They lost to Italy. They drew with Germany in what ended up being a thrilling game in the end. But Amy, the pressure goes up on Gareth Southgate and some of the players and selections around his team. 
this is so fascinating to watch. Can I just start with a positive? At least they scored in open play because all the headlines for the past week had been the minutes just ticking and ticking and ticking and ticking to actually scoring in open play. Um, obviously, there was a, you know, a pen thrown in there, but let's just remember that they scored in open play. So, yes, England are capable of scoring goals. But, uh, you know, I think this... A lot of people have had a crack at Southgate about, um, you know, not evolving, Tommy, and you talked about it just before, but not evolving and sticking with what he knows. And he's been quite forward in saying that, you know, I like to I like to trust in the people that I have there. And I think, you know, that trust can only last so long, especially when it comes to players like Ari Maguire, unfortunately. But um, the super subs were what saved that that game for sure. Uh, Saka especially involved in all three goals. Um, and I think they were unlucky probably not to get the win because of that that final goal. Uh, it is nice to see them scoring goals, but, yeah, some serious question marks and some well-deserved criticism too um, because you've got a plethora of players, talented players to pick from and to, to almost – I know coaches like to block out the noise around them, uh, but, but at some point you have to, you know, wind down the window a little bit and let some fresh air in. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that, you know, there's obviously been a lot of criticism, not only about the personnel, but his pragmatic approach. And I think it's, you know, they they have so many talented players at their disposal, but it almost doesn't matter which ones you put in if, if uh, you know, he's not really getting the best out of the players that are on the field. So I feel that that's kind of their issue at the moment. It doesn't matter which players he chooses, it'll be the same old story. And um, yeah, I mean, Trent Alexander-Arnold, for example, he's one player that, we know what he can do going forward, and obviously defensively, um, there's a lot of question marks. But given the fact that England plays with a back five, for me, um, I just can't understand why players like him aren't included. You know, kind of bringing that fluidity and um, between the defence and the attack. And I feel like that's a little bit what's lacking at the moment. It's all a bit rigid and predictable. Well, speaking of uh, rigid. I- Ivan Tony was called up into this squad but didn't get a minute. No Rashford, no Sancho in the squad. They were some of the high-profile names that missed. I guess, Amy, you know, is the criticism of Southgate fair given his record in major tournaments shows that he can get a team on a run, he's a unifier, he's great at managing the personalities, but have enough cracks appeared to suggest that they're teetering on the precipice of a real World Cup disaster? Potentially, Um uh, interestingly enough, the leadership group had a meeting with him this week. And uh, from what I'm reading, they're still supportive of what he's doing and what he's trying to do. And I guess you can look at that twofold because the team leaders are generally the players that have been there for quite a long time and are, are trying to continue to cement their positions um, within a team. So, you know, there's a little bit of manoeuvring going on there as well. But they're backing him at the moment. They're still third favourite, which I just find bizarre in, you know, if you're into the, the odds and all of that behind Brazil and France and up there with Argentina. But look, they've got Got it. The way that they're playing and with the heavy schedule between, you know, now and the tournament, I think they've got an eight-day preparation before game one. No more games. Is it enough to stick with what you've got and hope you can bring them up a gear? Um, or do you really need to shake things up a little bit in there? It's they're, they're massive questions for him. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, Whatever players and personnel he selects, I think that everybody in England just wants to see a more expansive brand of football. And I think that you know they have such 
mobile, fast, strong players. They should be, you know, getting in the face of the opposition and really suffocating them. And I feel like they're kind of just waiting for, for you know, for, for the, the game to come to them. And I feel like they should be the ones dictating. And I think that that kind of key shift in mentality will be essential if they're going to have a good tournament. Is that about self-belief though, um, Tommy, or is it about coaching? Because I kind of think, look, they were down 2-0 and you look at the formation tweaks that happened in that side in the game against Germany and they came back the better team for that period of time. Um, But how do you take that period of time and extend it out over that entire period? And how do you change that mentality to say, we're going to be the dictating team here. We're going to go out. We're going to play aggressive, um, fast you know, forward-facing football and we're going to own this rather than, oh, let's just wait and see and hope we can either outplay them or outmaneuver them or pinch one. Yeah, I think it's, it's obviously a combination of both probably. And I think that, you know, if you, if you think of England sides over the last 20 years, um, obviously with the, with the exception of the recent European championships, but it's always been the same old story. They've always had an unbelievable team on paper, but when it comes to delivering, the pressure gets to them. And you know, I'm a little bit nervous for, for, for them that this is going to be a similar story, this tournament. I think that the difference in the Euros was the whole nation made, a, made an effort not to put them under too much pressure. And I think that their success in that tournament now, you know, now everybody expects that they're going to be there or thereabouts challenging. And I think that, as you just mentioned, that can be reflected in how you know, the players take to the field and how aggressive they're going to be and how they're going to press. They can always, there's that seed of doubt that, is in their minds and that that's what they've been playing with in the last kind of couple of months so if they're going to have a good tournament they're def- definitely going to have to get rid of that well amy you've touched on it there some of the big guns in world football aren't exactly mounting a huge challenge uh, to perhaps the perceived favorites for the world cup italy we know aren't going germany have had patchy results spain got the better of portugal this morning to get through top of their nation's league group if you are listening to this on Wednesday so they pipped out Portugal 1-0 and won the group by one point Brazil by contrast they beat Ghana 3-0 and then Tunisia 5-1 so they went for a bit of variety in their World Cup preparation here against a couple of CAF opponents who is your World Cup favourite and why is it that so many of the heavyweights aren't exactly putting their name up in lights all right, so I was like, what is going on here? And I think I put it back a little bit on COVID and I think um, it's a little result of the hangover of two years of restrictions and it does take some time once you get back together as a team to find form and, and find, you know, find that new balance within that environment, much like injury. Um, you know, teams need time together. They need to integrate new players well. Um, and you think about this World Cup and I also think they've just not stopped playing, have they? Like they will, they're in a season, most of these, these players at the moment, their, their brains are on club football, club football, club football, and all of a sudden they're turning it into international football. And I just think it's a little bit of focus and it's a little bit of a hangover from those restrictive times. In saying that, my favourite, oh, I would love to to think that Argentina has enough to do this. Um, they've got, I don't want to say an, an easier ride, but they face Poland, Saudi Arabia, Mexico in the group stage. Um, they've got Messi. I'd love to see him, you know, I'd love to see that fairy tale story go. But I actually think that, I know this is such a long shot because it's been 20 years. I actually think if we're looking on paper at players, Brazil probably has the team to do this and they will start as a favourite um, for Qatar. You know, Neymar, Carlson, Vinny Jr., Rapinha, others. I know they've got this older group of players in there too, but the best thing about Brazil at the moment is they have like 
the superstar and then they have the understudy who's coming through and is just a little bit fresher better and more exciting so you know you're going to have those old heads in the center of the park hopefully if they're if they're all fit and firing um, but then you have the ability to inject some of this uh, you know youthful enthusiasm as I like to call it and players who are in form at the moment and finding the back of the net and creating um, wonderful moments in the sport so I'm gonna I I feel like I'm going with all the pundits out there but I'm gonna back Brazil. Tommy who have you got who's your World Cup favourite? For me it's um, Argentina Um, obviously you mentioned them before but you know obviously it's it's well documented Argentina going forward Um, you know the players they have at their disposal but I feel like watching the Copa America um, not too long ago as well. I think this is a slightly different Argentina team to what we're accustomed to as well. Um, they don't necessarily play the expansive brand of football that they always used to, but I feel that they've got more grit and more kind of defense. You're, you're more defensively confident in their ability to kind of see out a game. And, you know, they have a lot of 1-0 wins as well in the qualifiers. So I think that that's a kind of really good combination, um, you know, that grit in combination with their attacking uh, players that they have at their disposal to go a long way in this tournament. So... They're, they're the team that I'm backing. Well, let's change pace now because we've got some massive women's football headlines we need to get to. Perhaps uh, the one that has flown under the radar due to no surprises or, or nothing out of the ordinary. The Matildas have named their squad to take on South Africa and Denmark. The media release did mention that Alana Kennedy and Elise Kellond Knight were left out due to being injured at the moment, but wanted to make mention of the fact that they weren't there but certainly weren't forgotten. Amy, what are you hoping to see from the Matildas? They play South Africa first in London and then they're away to Denmark. So what can we expect? Well, a couple of wins would be great, wouldn't it? So let's start there. We'll, we'll take a couple of wins. Um, the Banyana Banyana, always, that's the South African uh, team's name, it, always super exciting. Uh, they are ranked 54th in the world. It should be a great confidence-building game for the Matildas. Um, their team was beaten by Brazil 6-0 last year, I think, and they uh, beat Morocco just recently to earn a place in the Women's World Cup. So they will be a, a you know they will be a World Cup team, and the draw for that comes along on the 22nd of October. So where where they end up, we don't know yet. Most of their players play locally. There's a couple playing in the Italian lower grades. Um, they've lost their most well-known and well-capped player in Janine Van Marwick. So it's kind of like a new team for them. So I'm hoping for Australia, this is one that they can just, um, they can command right from the beginning of the game, own the game, build some confidence, try a few um, moves, but really just settle into uh, just some strong, I guess, patterns or principles of play um, through that. And then they take on Denmark, which will be a different match and and probably a lot tougher. They're ranked 17 in the world. Um, They're coming off a pretty disappointing Euros. They got thumped by Germany during that. They got pipped by Spain, like just 1-0 though. Pernille Harder is probably a name that most of our uh, female footballers will be familiar with as their star. She plays for Chelsea, but uh, actually has a hammy injury at the moment. So you just got to keep your eye on that. Sophie's father playing for Real Madrid in Spain. And they've got a whole host of players that play across the WSL. Um, A couple, I think, Leonen in Sweden as well. So plenty of international experience in that Danish side. They'll be a lot tougher than what people actually expect, but a really great test. Um, I know you said there's not new faces per se. Kennedy, Callan Knight mentioned, as you said, uh, admitted due to injury. And unfortunately, uh, you know, I think for Alana that that's a hangover from when they last played here. But uh, I'm hoping we get to see Chloe Legazzo get some minutes. She was obviously in camp um, last time coming back from her ACL and it's been 
quite a while. But otherwise, as you said, it's usual suspects. Um, Ivy Lewick will probably, you know, slot in there again for Alana. Um, but this team's really struggled, I think, to have their full complement of players over the last 18 months. So I'm just hoping that everyone's actually fit and we can get them all out there on the field together. Mm. 180 minutes of Alex Chidiak. That's all I ask. Nothing more. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I should still with the shorts down to the knees. Yeah, if, if the team wants to solve their problems, the answer's right there. All right, let's uh, talk about the WSL. <laughs> Sam Kerr, scoreless in the first two games. Now, in less than 24 hours, she can make this topic a moot point because Chelsea do have one more game before this international break takes place. Of course, uh, the first weekend of WSL was postponed due to the passing of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. So Chelsea are playing against Mackenzie Arnold's West Ham at 4.05 on Thursday morning, depending on when you're catching up on this pod. So just briefly, because she might uh, make this uh, completely irrelevant. Can you just remember the names that are in this Chelsea side and what some of those names have just done? They've just won Euros and they're um, you know, their English players are on cloud nine in amazing form and humongous, crazy, crazy confidence right now. I'm not so worried for Sam being scoreless in the first two games. As you said, mixed results. They lost to new starters, Liverpool 2-1. I think that would have been a kick in the bum for them, not, you know, not focusing. Um, probably still the, the English girls were out partying, were they, till the night before that game? I've got no idea how long the celebrations lasted for. But um, they beat Manchester City. Uh, no Alana Kennedy there too. I know Sam didn't score in that one, but she was in and around the box um, in there. But just like this, it's so hard to stand out in that team now. You look, and not just in, in that team in Arsenal, and, and you'll probably get onto that in a moment, but you just look at the top sides in that English league and the superstars and the form that they're in. It is really tough to be a standout player. Um, there are They are coming in thick and fast. If Sam Kerr is going to win the Ballon d'Or and is the nominative best player in the world, you don't take you don't take days off and let your teammates have a bite of the apple. You're you're ever present. You you are <laughs> she the irresistible. Needs to be more greedy. <laughs> yeah, you're the irresistible force. I look at look. I mean, Jess Fishlock has never but, won the Ballon d'Or, but look at how she commands every dressing room and every game that she plays in, oh, and yeah. is always that's the her center. personality though. The, the Matildas don't need a humble, unselfish Sam Kerr. They need a Sam Kerr that is going to have the weight <laughs> of the team on her back, and so why? Uh, that's what I want to see reflected when she plays for Chelsea. Yeah, and that's a fair call. That's a fair call. Yeah, even even the fact that you can say, you know, she's gone two day, two games without scoring and ask if there's a crisis, I mean, that, that kind of goes to show the standard that she's set herself over the years. So, I mean, uh, for me, there's no cause for concern, but and I'm sure that she'll kind of get back to scoring ways very soon. Let's talk about a team that are free scoring at the moment and the Australians are having a big say in it. Caitlin Ford and Steph Cantley both had assists as Arsenal beat Tottenham 4-0 in front of a WSL record 47,000. They did just fall short of the UK record which is 53,000 which they were hoping to break but you feel as though it's only a matter of time until that record goes at some point this season. However, a little fly in the ointment they drew at home with Ajax in the Champions League and now they've got a potentially tricky away leg. So even though Arsenal are flying in the WSL, Amy, that they would consider it a failed season if they do bomb out of Europe even before the group stage. 
Um, I don't know what was going on that day. I don't know if it's just an off day, if it's, you know, certain things happen, massive mistakes. Um, but they've had two four nil wins and, as you said, broke the record with the crowd. Caitlin Ford has been – I just want to see more of this when she plays for Australia. More of the ball at her feet, please. She was awesome in the Tottenham game. Um, you know, her driving runs with the ball uh, in their four nil win over Brighton – Okay, that was against 10 players, I'll say that. But again, you've got Miedemar, you've got Beth Mead, you've got Steph Catley, you've got Caitlin Ford, you've got Stender Black Stenius. Um, and most important, I think, for this Arsenal team, for me, is the amazing intelligence of Kim Little in the middle. She just is unbelievable with her, her vision, the way she commands the ball, she wants it all the time, and the way she's able to slice through opponents um, just beautifully. And, and I'm going to call it early. I'm sorry, Sam. I hope you get the golden boot, but I just feel like Beth Mead is just on this run of form and you just cannot stop her. And I think she'll really challenge Sam, if not win the golden boot this year. There it is, nice and early. <laughs> now, there, there's always value in, in every game because we haven't touched on Man United. Obviously, Man City have had a very rocky start but there are some really good entertaining games going on in the WSL at the moment but we've left this until last because it's kind of been the story of the week it was really burning uh, brightly at the end of last week and now the fallout continues and that is the Spanish women's national team the news reports that 15 players had apparently threatened to stand down from the team unless Jorge Vilda their manager went And then there was a bit of a backtrack and a statement came out saying in no way have we threatened to uh, resign from the national team. We just want commitment to uh, a professional project and we've never requested the dismissal of the coach. So in the space of about 24 hours, Amy, this went from crisis to back down, break it down for us. What has been the fallout of this entire situation for what was especially around the time they were beating Australia 7-0, a team that we were being told were were certainties to win the World Cup. Yeah, I feel like this comes off the back of the Euros a little bit because they would have been really disappointed with um, the team's final positioning at the Euros. And I want us to keep in mind, you know, Pateus, Homoso, players like that missing. So when you... Um, and and one or two big players like that do make a difference to this squad... Um, There are a lot of players right now playing at the top who've worked so hard to sacrifice incredible amounts. They absolutely deserve recognition for what they're doing. But this is um, this is about players wanting to be part of something bigger and greater. There were letters apparently all very similar, almost the same, sent to the association saying that well, we're not sure what they say now because one side of the story says they wanted the the coach sacked. The other side says it didn't. They just want changes. Um, The association came out super strong and said, basically, if you don't want to play for our country, we're happy to leave you out. You're going to need to apologise. I think they even mentioned uh, if you don't wear the jersey over there, it's a two to five year possible ban from playing football. Uh, Like I can't even imagine them enforcing that with the type of players. No players from Real Madrid were on that list, which is something that we need to dig a little bit deeper into. Um, But I don't know what Spain would look like without these 15 players. I think you'd have a lot of their youth side. I can't imagine them being left out. I just hope uh, 
well, you know, if you're facing them in in the, in upcoming games, you kind of hope this continues. But for you know, for the betterment and the best of the game and moving forward, I hope that they can sort it out. And it's never nice to have players versus coaches uh, in the headlines. And certainly, Jorge Vilda would be feeling uncomfortable now. Uh, it would be great to be a fly on the wall at their next national team camp. That is for sure. Uh, Tommy, as a as a recently retired player, you would know that player power. Uh, no doubt footballers, Mbappe in particular keeping uh, close ties to the NBA they see what goes on where players sort of go into their own you know, they're their own media outlet they become their own manager they, they effectively become their own team within a team. But in this instance the Spanish Federation held their ground and kind of called the bluff of the 15 players and, and it did change the story very quickly within a 24-hour period. Where do you see, as a recently retired player, the state of player power at the moment? Because I have no doubt that if this was a club team revolting against the manager, the gaffer goes. It's a bit of a different situation when it's a national team, though, isn't it? Yeah, I think it obviously is a little bit of a different situation. But at the same time, I mean, it's, it's it's an incredible set of circumstances because, you know, if if the players revolt so unanimously... um, one way or another, I can't see how the coach can can stay on because you know if if you take away those fifteen players like Amy touched on, they're not the same side that they once were, and and if you do include them, then all of a sudden there's all these players that don't have the belief in the coach. So one way or another, I think the coach goes, and I think that that's a kind of the the resolution that I can't see being avoided. Um, and in terms of the the growing kind of player power in football, um, yeah, I think that. There's always has been player power, but I think now that players have more of a platform and maybe they're more willing to be a bit more outspoken on a lot of issues than they perhaps they once were. And um, yeah, I think that's probably why you're seeing more of these kinds of issues. It is a, it, it was an interesting... Well, I thought it was the right stance from um, the Spanish Football Federation to stand strong because I guess it depends on which lens you look at it through, Tommy, doesn't it? Because you can look at it through the player lens um, where they're obviously thinking that they're a great group of players, they should be getting better results. And can we just keep mindful it was quarterfinals, they got knocked out in one nil to eventual winners um England. That's that's that was their exit. So it's not while it was disappointing, it's not like it wasn't, you know, a horrible, horrible tournament in that respect. So so, you know, these do you are they choosing do you think to play for for club over country are they saying well we're good enough the coach is the problem here is there some self-reflection to happen um i'm you know if you look at it from a business perspective in what other uh in what other job because football is their job do you get to choose your boss i guess it depends on what lens you look at this through and i think as former players we go straight to the player first don't we we put ourselves in well what would we do as a player if this was the case um but when you start to open your eyes a little bit more and take a look at all the different perspectives you you can kind of understand it and it puts you in a little bit of a conundrum because you're right if the coach stays and the players refuse to play it's a problem but if you allow the players to continually choose what's going on uh, or who their boss is or how the association is going to run, when does that stop? And at what, you know, at what point you know, does player power then not run the game? And will they, will they be running their own recruitment process in the future? Who knows? All I can say is at the moment as the, the risk is there and with the intensifying demands of you know, travel, um, what they're trying to do as far as careers go – it's it's something that we're going to have to from from every side keep our finger on the pulse for. 
they are due to play Sweden in what a week's time. <laughs> so let's hope they can sort it out before that. What I will say, Amy, is no one goes to the football to cheer for administrators and uh, very, very few people go to, go to the football to cheer for a coach. We cannot have Spain come to this World Cup without Aitana Bonmati or Leila Wahabi or Leia Alexandri, Mariona Caldenti, Mappy Leon. I mean, these were the names among the 15 that were apparently taking this stance. The the fan sentiment is like 99.9% in the players' favour. And I feel as though... uh, Absolutely, I agree with you. They're, They're... Really, we want full stadiums, and if if Spain get the the stank of this is a B team around them, I mean, let's put them in a group that plays in New Zealand, quite frankly. We want Spain's best team here, but we want them to get drawn in a group (laughs) in Australia too. And there's one more massive match. We think it could potentially be a preview of the World Cup final. It's Wembley, it's England, and it's the United States, Amy. It doesn't get much bigger than this in all football, never mind women's football. This has like been marked on the calendar with a super big circle around it in red since it was announced. It's sold out in 24 hours. If this is not the first real challenge of USA's stranglehold of that number one spot in years, I, I don't know what it is. Um, these two teams have only faced off twice before at the Women's World Cup in 2019, which went 2-1 to USA, including a player down for England, though, and then a 2-0 loss at the She Believes Cup the following year. But following that Euros win and watching the USA at the moment as they go through this transition, because remember they've lost, you know, they've lost a lot of like their big names over the last little while. They are a transitioning team. I actually think the Poms can beat them. I do. I think if they're firing, they can beat them. Um, The one thing I will say about this US team is you can never stop. You can never stop. They will absolutely play for the full 90 minutes and they will believe that they can score even if there is 10 seconds to go in added time. They are that confident of finding something to win. As I said, this match sold out in 24 hours. Wembley is going to be absolutely packed. Their website <laughs> crashed because of all the, um, the love that this game is going to, to get. And we will just be watching with both delight and sheer anticipation. It, it's like possibly one of the biggest games ahead of the World Cup on the calendar at the moment. can tell I'm excited, right? <laughs> All right. On that note, let's get to the Premier League this weekend. Uh, we've got the North London derby. We've got the Manchester derby. Chelsea away to Palace. Leicester versus Forest could be a sack race game. Uh, just a, a, a quick last word on the Premier League returning this weekend. Tommy, what is going to be your main focus given you are over in Europe and it'll be on at a nice pleasant time for you? Yeah, I think the North London derby, like you touched on, that should be a cracking game. Um, obviously, Arsenal started the season wonderfully and Tottenham as well have as well. So I think this is probably looming as maybe the best, um, you know, one of the most intriguing North London derbies in recent memory. Um, you know, the last time that Arsenal and Tottenham were both playing at the top of their games, is it's difficult to remember when that was the last time. So, um, no, I think that's definitely one I'm looking forward to. And obviously the Manchester derby as well. Um, Obviously, Manchester United had such early struggles um, today that during the season, but you know they've turned it around, and I feel like this is going to be a really good kind of litmus test to see whether they can contend for the title. I think the North London derby is an interesting one because uh, Arsenal are already spruiking how many players they're missing. Um, 
you know, so that, that I don't know if that sets the tone for what we're to expect or perhaps what their camp is expecting. But um, the Manchester Derby, who you support, mm, so interesting, isn't it? Who you support and who you think will win, very different views, of course. Um, but I'm looking forward to seeing Varane and Haaland because uh, obviously I don't think Maguire's up to the task and um, Martinez will struggle a little bit, uh, certainly in the aerial battle there. So, yeah, this will be this will be a good one with a couple of one-on-one duels to watch as well. Like you mentioned, I think after the international break, it's always intriguing to know how things are going to play out in terms of players getting injured and for their countries, all these types of things. So that's always another factor, but it's, it always adds in a kind of element where it's really difficult to predict. So that, like you mentioned, that'll be another intriguing factor for the weekend. Well, Amy Duggan, thank you for joining us on the Gegen Pod this morning. Thank you for having me. And Tommy Orr, safe travels. It's been great having your insights once again as a former Socceroo. Enjoy the rest of your time over in Europe. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you to Tommy and Amy. Don't forget the Premier League returns this weekend with the North London Derby from Emirates Stadium at 9.30pm Australian Eastern Standard Time on Saturday, followed by Goal Rush featuring Crystal Palace versus Chelsea from midnight Australian Eastern on Sunday, and then the Manchester Derby from Etihad Stadium at midnight on Monday. The WSL continues Thursday with Sam Kerr's Chelsea hosting Mackenzie Arnold's West Ham from 4.05am Australian Eastern Standard Time, and then Everton against Leicester on Friday from 3.30am. La Liga is back at 5am on Saturday with Athletic Club playing Almeria and don't miss Barcelona's trip to Mallorca at 6am Australian Eastern Time on Sunday and Real Madrid hosting Osasuna at 6am Eastern on Monday. And in the J-League, Kevin Muscat's Yokohama F. Marinos are away at fifth-placed Kashima Antlers on Saturday at 5pm Australian Eastern Time. All of this live and on demand on Optus Sport. Thanks for listening to the Gagan Pod this week. Make sure to subscribe and rate us five stars, regardless of where you get the pod. I've been your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Thanks for your company once again on the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This was the Gagan Pod. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.